Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by John Hoffman. John is a PhD student at George Mason University. He's also the foreign policy media editor at Jadalia. He's written a number of, of really interesting articles recently, including one that, that came out earlier this year, titled Moscow, Beijing, and the Crescent, Russian and Chinese Religious Soft Power in the Middle East. And I'm really delighted that he's here today to talk about that and uh, and some other bits of work that he's done on political Islam. So, John, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me on, Simon. It's a pleasure. I'm really, um, really looking forward to, to chatting with you about uh, about the article and about you. So we'll start with the latter, if that's okay. And uh, what was it that, that got you interested in in the Middle East, the academy, political Islam? Sure. So when when I was going through uh, high school, my parents and relatives all worked for the government and you know being kind of raised in the post 9-11 era the middle east was always a, a central focus and when i started studying the middle east and really diving into more critical perspectives i really got interested in it because i came to see that almost everything that we were told by conventional news sources and you know, conventional politicians and everything was essentially just wrong. <laughs> um, so I really got into studying the more nuances and, you know, wanted to look behind kind of the veil of public discourse into what really the Middle East is, what who the people really are and what the problems really are instead of what's typically peddled by more conventional news sources or politicians or, you know, you know some more you know junior analysts and things like that got you okay so was there a, a particular thing that that you can think of here that that really stuck out for you when you were when you were studying and and you realized this sort of this this real real tension between what you were being told and then the the reality i, mean, I don't want to say the truth but the um <laughs> the the sort of the the reality on the ground, if you will, is there is there something that you can you can highlight there that that resonated for you? Of course. So I think the the main issue was regarding Islam, and I think you know there was so much controversy and so you know so much ignorance surrounding Islam and surrounding how Islam relates to politics in the region and more generally. So. You know, growing up, you know, we, we were often told, you know, if, if you want to understand the Middle East, you have to understand Islam. You have to understand uh, Islam because that's the way that everybody in the region thinks is, is the is the view that we were typically told. Hmm. And as, as I, you know, really dived into studying the Middle East in undergrad and, and you know, graduate studies, you know, I found exactly the opposite. You know, Islam is a tool that is used and manipulated by rulers in the Middle East and Islam itself is is not, you know, this quote-unquote boogeyman that everybody in the West, you know, views it to be and you know, personally I grew up in a in a very religious household. I, I grew up uh, in a in a Catholic house, household. And it, you know, there's typically not a lot of exposure to religion, you know, other religions such as Islam and things like that. Mm-hmm. 
So when I really got into studying the Middle East, Islam was, of course, a, a central focus. And, you know, as I came to learn more about Islam and I came to learn more about the Middle East, you know, I came to really love it. I came to love studying the region and I came to love the religion itself. And when I was uh, a younger man, I converted when I was 18 and, you know, really came to view that a, a lot of the conventional views that were peddled regarding the Middle East and Islam are just absolutely backwards. Right. Okay. Wow. There's a, a lot going on there then. Um, yeah. Uh, so that perhaps for, for people who weren't familiar with the, the immediate aftermath of 9-11 in the US and, and views about Islam, could you just just briefly, John, um, tell us a little bit about that that climate of the sort of the, the boogeyman of, of how how Islam was being framed as the source of all all evils. No, of course, and and you know it, it kind of began after uh, 1991 with uh, the first you know Iraq War and uh, Desert Storm, but it really of course exploded after 9/11, and you know being in the U.S. and I was from a more you know rural town, um, it was just. It's sort of the the ignorance surrounding Islam and the way that it became, in a sense, the new enemy in the United States. Because mm. you know, during the Cold War, we had a union, and it seemed that Islam, almost following the collapse of the Soviet Union, took that place, took that place in you know the West, especially the United States, kind of set its crosshairs on Islam especially following 9-11, and there was so much distrust surrounding Islam in, in the Muslim community within the United States. There was a lot of animosity because they viewed, uh, a lot of just tra- traditional Americans viewed Islam as, you know, the, the, the culprit of 9-11 and viewed the Muslim community as, you know, n- maybe not everybody viewed it as a threat, but everybody viewed it with caution. Hmm. And, you know, it was... It was a time when a lot of ignorant scholarship was written, a lot of uh, ignorant discourse was flying around, and that's what spurred my interest was, you know, everybody always told me, well, if you want to understand, you know, the Middle East or anything like that, then you got to understand Islam. So. Yes, and when I started looking into it more and really starting studying it more, I said, no, you know, you all are, are actually incorrect. Islam itself as a religion is, you know, you know, a, be- a beautiful thing. It's been manipulated by many actors politically, but you know, you have it backwards here. Yeah. Wow. That's that's yeah, such a a dark trip back down um, down memory lane to that that immediate aftermath of nine eleven. But um, yeah, I think it's it's obviously quite a journey that that you've been on as well. I must ask, and. Um, Apologies if this this delves a little too too much into the personal, but how was the response to to your conversion then? That must have been at a time when when things were quite quite difficult for for Muslims in the states amidst this deeply um, politicized and perhaps even securitized climate. Yes, yeah, so no, and, and no worries at all about the question. Um, so it, you know, at first when I converted, it was technically at 17 when I converted and, you know, my parents, uh, were very understanding 
and they wanted to, you know, make sure that it was coming from a a good place and a place that was grounded in, you know, studying the religion and you know, studying alternatives and things like that. So my parents were very understanding, very embracing. Uh, re- other relatives and uh, other, you know, friends and things like that were definitely not as as understanding. Uh, and especially, you know, following the election of Trump, you know, that issue has kind of resurfaced and a lot of scholarship that have written in the past couple of years, sometimes, you know, if people are aware of this fact, they will, you know, try to uh, attack my articles for being biased or things like that. For, you know, and they would claim that it stems from uh, this religious conversion or my, my own religious uh, outlook. But on in the whole, the, the experience has been very positive. I, you know, my parents have been very embracing you know my closest friends have been very embracing and i think there's been a shift in a lot of the perceptions of americans regarding islam understanding that okay this is this idea of an islamic boogeyman has been exploited not only by uh, regimes in the middle east but also by political leaders here in the west too for their own purposes yeah. well look I'm, I'm really reassured to to hear that and to hear of your your positive experience but also to hear of the um the, the shifting perceptions and narratives around around islam in the in the u.s so john i must move forward a little bit and you you mentioned studying um studying more about the region and and Islam. When was it that you decided that uh, that a PhD was was the right path for you? So that's a funny question because <laughs> I don't have a funny answer. Um, so I went to my uh, the director of my master's studies program uh, at Mason, Basam Haddad, mm-hmm. and and I asked him. I said, I don't know what to do after this. I need a job. And he said, Well, how, how does uh, getting a PhD sound. And, and I, I told him, I said, you know, I don't really come from the family that gets PhDs, you know, where we weren't very, you know, financially, you know, superior or anything like that. Right. And he mentioned the idea of, of, you know, trying to get funding for it. And, and then from there, we just kind of rolled with it and, you know, applied to, to Mason and some other schools and then ended up uh, getting funding. And, and then that's when I said, okay, you know, I love studying the region. I absolutely, you know, love studying uh, political Islam. And I said, sure, you know, this, th- it just made sense. Sure. Well, for, for those people who are unaware of what it is that you're doing, just give us a, a brief um, elevator pitch, if you will, of your uh, of your research, John. Sure. So, uh, so my research really focuses on political Islam and geopolitical competition in the region. So I look at uh, state-state competition in the region, and I also look at how within that competition between states, Islam is often marshaled as a tool of foreign policy for these different actors. Great. And your your focus lies where then um, with, with these sort of competitions? So it, it focuses mainly, I would say, in the Gulf, but of course it, it will expand out from there because the competitions themselves often take place uh, in arenas such as Egypt or Syria mm-hmm. or Libya or Yemen. 
Uh, so it, it's it's more. I would say my focus is more broad, looking at the the region from maybe thirty thousand feet, and <laughs> right. looking down, looking at all the different moving parts, and trying to assess. Okay, what is moving where, and who is moving what piece? Fascinating. Really, really interesting stuff. Which leads on quite nicely, I think, to this article of yours that I mentioned in the introduction, um, which was published in the uh, Digest of Middle East Studies earlier this year. So the piece is titled, I have it here and it's just disappeared, Moscow, Beijing and the Crescent, Russian and Chinese Religious Soft Power in the Middle East. So... I read this when it was uh, when it was shared online uh, a while ago now, and found it fascinating, really rich, really provocative, and it it made me think about things in a way that I hadn't previously thought, which I think is is the best type of scholarship. So, tell us uh, for the, for anyone who's not read it yet, and I strongly recommend that that you do. What's what's the article trying to do, John? So, so first, thank you very much for your kind words and compliments about the piece. No, it's a pleasure. Yeah, it, it, so the piece itself, it, it was actually a, a splinter project of a <laughs> bigger project. It's, yeah, it's, it's crazy how, you know, you go down these rabbit holes and then you keep going and keep going. Um, so it was a splinter project of a bigger project looking at great power competition in the Middle East. So I wanted to look at, you know, and now, you know, following kind of, you know, ISIS and Al-Qaeda are kind of, you know, sidelined in the region. And now the focus is, well, you know, Russia is back in the region and China's interests are growing tremendously. So, you know, how is the U.S. going to compete in the region? And and what does the presence of these two other actors mean for uh, U.S. dominance in the region? So in looking at that, of course, was looking at more of the political uh, diplomatic and economic and military engagement. But then I found <clears throat> this heavy presence of religious engagement, which, you know, as you said, was typically more overlooked in, in the grander picture. And as I started looking more into it, I, I really started to find the efforts, the coordinated efforts between Moscow, Beijing, and a number of countries in the Middle East really regarding narratives surrounding Islam, uh, narratives surrounding Islam within, back within uh, Russia and China. And I found it fascinating, and I really just wanted to flesh this idea out more. Amazing. I think that's the, the best reason for writing something as well, that intellectual curiosity that you want to learn more about something and write more about it. So you think, hey, that's that's an article. So, God, wonderful. Um, let's take it back a bit, John, if I may. I and you were saying, look, there's the the sort of U.S. engagement with external actors there, sort of a more more traditional, conventional um, geopolitical rivalries. So when you started looking at it, um, maybe this is a view from seventy thousand feet rather than thirty thousand feet, but that that superficial view. What what does that see um, competition between the U.S., Russia, and China looking like, or or perhaps not competition, but um, relations or maneuverings look like without taking into account the 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 nuances and subtleties of, of Islam. Sure. So the you know looking at it from that you know kind of zooming out and looking at it from that perspective. So 
you know, Russia has reengaged in the region. They, they obviously intervened directly in Syria. They operate mercenaries throughout the region in places like Libya and Sudan and Syria, of course. Uh, and China has rapidly expanded its presence in the Middle East. You know, it is now the largest oil consumer, the largest trade partner in the region, and the largest investor in the region. And all of these were typically held by the United States, but, you know, with a more decline in our interests in the region, you know, these powers have kind of moved in. But the the point that I always stress is Russia, Russian and Chinese engagement in the region right now is is only possible because of the U.S. presence in the region, because the United States maintains that security umbrella in the region, because it maintains the freedom of uh, maneuverability in the seas, because it kind of upholds that security status quo. Russia and China have been able to come in under this security umbrella and expand their interests and expand their influence while not assuming much of the direct burden because the United States upholds the status quo in the region. Right, okay. And, yeah, exactly. And, and now that, you know, the role of the United States in the region is being debated and, you know, there's a, you know, kind of a conflict between those who want to remain engaged in the region and those who want to leave the region, this question of, great power competition has kind of assumed a central place in this conversation as people are saying, well, we can't leave because w- what about Russia and China? What about their growing uh, influence? So it's, it's almost emerged as a new reason for deep engagement in the region. Yeah, sure. So that's really interesting to think about it in that sort of levels of analysis, macro structural way of U.S. behavior creating possibilities for other actors, even against or perhaps against U.S. interests. That's quite an interesting way of looking at it. But what was the the way of, of getting into the into the weeds then? What was the clue to start looking for the, the relations between Moscow and Beijing and and localized um, religious groups or Islamist groups? So, uh, really, the the main impetus there was, you know, there's always been a lot of focus on, you know, the growing political or military or economic engagement. But a- as I was looking more into it, you know, th- I noticed this pattern of religious engagement. And there were two things that really set me off to go down this road to look more into it was first the 2016 uh a conference on Sunni Islam held in Grozny, Chechnya. Mm-hmm. And that fascinated me because it drew some of the leading scholars of Islam from the United Arab Emirates, but especially Egypt in Al-Azhar. And I was puzzled at first as to why they would, you know, why there was such a draw for Sunni scholars to Grozny, Russia, or to Grozny, Chechnya and Russia, to kind of set forth this new path for Sunni Islam to take, you know, where they denounced yeah. Wahhabism, they denounced Salafism, they denounced the Muslim Brotherhood, they even denounced Al Jazeera. Um, and so that fascinated me as to why, you know, because this, this rhetoric was very in line with what was being used by the more counter revolutionary states in the Middle East, mm-hmm. uh, such as the UAE or Egypt and Saudi Arabia. 
in, you know, it, it struck me as, okay, so Russia is kind of promoting a similar discourse here. Yeah. And, and on the other hand, with China, what struck me was to the great extent to which Muslim states in the region, especially Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Egypt, the, the extents to which they went to not only justify Chinese repression of their Muslim community, but even legitimize it. And, and that's what struck me is, okay, well, what, what is going on here? Yeah. John, there's something that, that slightly grates a little bit with this, for me at least. And that concerns the, the, the holding of this event in Grozny, which is, um, I, I guess it relates back to, um, to the Chechen war and Russia's longstanding um, violence in, in Chechnya. Can you elaborate a little bit on, on why Russia was getting involved with, with that and why Russia was, uh, was getting more involved in, in providing support to Islamist groups in spite of having fought a, a long and, and, and bloody war against groups with Islamist backgrounds? Of course. So in Chechnya, Russia's interests, of course, remain preventing separatism and preventing uh, the presence of extremist actors and preventing collaboration between actors in Chechnya and actors in the Middle East. So so during the, the Chechen wars, a common uh, accusation of Russia was that the radicals in Chechnya were cooperating directly and being funded by the Gulf monarchies. So what has really emerged as a central objective of Russia is to prevent such kinds of transnational collaboration. And now that states in the Gulf, like Saudi Arabia and the UAE, or states like Egypt, have likewise come to view political Islam, whether it be mainstream or radical, as an existential threat to their own interests, that's where this relationship has really uh, expanded because b- both of them now view Islam as a threat to their own personal rule. And, and in, in Chechnya, for Putin, Ramzan Kadyrov has really emerged as the, the point man for Putin's interest in, in Chechnya and the idea of being able to uphold a a moderate quote unquote moderate Islam uh, order in Chechnya under the iron fist of Ramzan Kadyrov. Sure. Okay. So that's a really interesting bit of of chess across um, across different continents. There, um, fascinating stuff. So. Talk to us then about the way this plays out actually in the region um, post-2016, post this, this conference that you flag up in Grozny. Tell us a little bit, please, about, um, about the processes of engagement, the types of engagement, um, the types of relationships that we're starting to see, and, and what's driving them, please. Sure. So uh, beginning first with Russia, you have... Uh, because Ramzan Kadyrov has really emerged as Putin's point man for this, he has made a number of trips to the Middle East where he has been uh, 
you know, described as Russia's cultural ambassador to the Islamic world or the Kremlin's top diplomat in mm-hmm. the region. And, you know, he has really engaged with Saudi Arabia, the UAE and Egypt. Um, you know, in, in 2018, he was received in Saudi Arabia for Eid al-Adha. And he was presented with all the diplomatic honors of, you know, a major international leader. And he has really been working with regional actors to promote this idea of a politically pacifist, um, state-controlled Islam. For China, on the other hand, the main actor that has been coordinating engagement between Beijing and the region is the Chinese Islamic Association. Right. And yes, and and all narratives coming in or out of China concerning Islam are controlled by the Chinese Islamic Association. And really what it's been doing is trying to coordinate with states such as Saudi Arabia, the UAE, or Egypt to not only prevent them from criticizing uh, the just absolutely horrific actions that China is taking against its Muslim community, but mm-hmm. also coordinate uh, the traveling of, of Chinese Muslims to uh, Saudi Arabia for the Hajj that is directly controlled by the Chinese Islamic Association who uh, works in tandem with Saudi Arabia to control who gets to go over there and yeah. when and ex- exactly how and for how long. Mm-hmm. And also... Um, the Islamic Association, when when religious figures from the Middle East come to China and visit, the Islamic Association is the one who uh, directs their visits, the one who kind of coordinates everything. And it's really emerged, like Ramzan Kadyrov has in Russia, it's emerged as China's kind of point man, if you will. Right, okay. Interesting. The, I mean, I've got a pick up on this point about China there's there's obviously this this really apparent tension between um, supporting China or coming out of the region at least there's this this very obvious tension that sees um, sees abhorrent treatment of, of China's Uyghur population but yet seemingly no vocal condemnation of the mistreatment of, of Muslims by by the region's leaders, which seems at odds with with other efforts from the likes of Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Iran, to um, to speak out in support of, of Muslims across the world. There seems to be an incongruence there, and I'm sure there there are a number of, of responses to that. But what what do you think is at play, John, with with this failure to um, to adequately speak out against it? Of course. So I think you know. It- the very central, you know, response would be money talks. <laughs> right. And, you know, China being the number one oil consumer, being the largest investor in the region and being the largest trade partner now, the regimes in, in the Middle East are not keen on jeopardizing those relationships over Chinese treatment of Muslims. And, and I think it goes to show, you know, there's a very clear hierarchy of interests here Yeah, for, for the governments in the Middle East, you know, it, protecting, you know, the rights of Muslims and things like that, although, you know, makes for a very nice, you know, PR move uh, by a lot of these governments and other contexts, 
you know, has been sidelined completely in its relationships with China. And, you know, you've, you've seen governments not only justify and legitimize Chinese repression of the Uyghur community, but look at Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and the UAE. They've all uh, arrested and deported, exiled Uyghur Muslims, and they've deported them back to China at the request of Beijing, uh, where, you know, it, they face almost certain, you know, imprisonment. Yeah. So it, it, this idea of, you know, it, and that's what fascinated me too, was, you know, so many will point to Saudi Arabia or these countries, you know, speaking for Islam or, you know, being the upholder of Muslim rights or things like that. And it's, it's really quite the opposite. This, this is a cloak that they will put on when it suits their interests and just as easily they will take it off the minute that it does not. That surely... Going back to your, I guess, your your PhD research, that instrumental or, or perhaps going a little further, cynical deployment of, of narratives such as this has a, a damage or can, can damage the, the legitimacy of, of such states and their, their claims to religious legitimacy. No, absolutely. And, you know, I think what we've seen is now states such, you know, such as Saudi Arabia and the UAE are, are really trying to push this conception of quote unquote moderate Islam. Mm -hmm. And of course this, this moderate Islam, while it, you know, sounds great is, is, is anything, but it is, it is state controlled. It is Islam. It is an Islam that is politically pacifist and political, uh, it, it completely apolitical. And it, it's really being used by people such as Mohammed bin Salman or Mohammed bin Zayed as a way to kind of curry favor with the West. You know, this idea that they're promoting like a moderate Islam. But in actuality, under this umbrella of moderate Islam, it is just the repression of all who dare to speak out against the regime, whether whether it be. Uh, secular or religious or what have you it is it is a it, it is a weapon designed to crush all dissent it's interesting you say that um and it's it's deeply depressing of course um, yeah, it, absolutely it, it goes back to what you were saying at the start about um the the manipulation and the deployment of of Islam by by elites in in the region by those wanting to use it for their own nefarious purposes and indeed by by those in the West and this maybe this is is me holding up a mirror to what you've said earlier but there was an interesting piece that you wrote in uh, was it responsible statecraft comparing some of the responses of of rulers in the region to to Trump itself and some of yes. these authoritarian strategies. So there's there's an interesting parallel there, but it's um, it just strikes me as, as being deeply depressing. No, it is, and, and you know the purpose of that piece was I was trying to convey that you know all the terrible things that Trump did, and God, there are so many. Um, <laughs> yeah, but. Following yes, following the murder of George Floyd and the way that he responded to the protests, the way that he marched to that church and held up the Bible and all that, you know, it it was incredibly abhorrent. But what I was trying to convey with that article was 
we also need to come to the understanding that when such protests or things like that emerge in places such as the Middle East, the United States is typically the first one to support those dictators in doing the exact same thing. So that was kind of the argument there was America's foreign policy had come home in the yeah. was, you know, yes, what Trump did was absolutely horrible. But let's not lose sight of the fact that the United States, far before Trump, has been supporting leaders to do this across the world. Yeah, of course. And uh, that could lead us down a, a very long and, and even darker, a more depressing um, set of exactly. observations. And and when the sun is out here, John, and I'm sure Washington, uh, D.C. right now is beautiful with the 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 trees coming into bloom, the cherry blossom, and I think that maybe we should save the uh, the the darker, more depressing set of reflections for another time. Uh, I agree. <laughs> but John, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Your your research is absolutely fascinating. I really, really, uh, I'm I'm keen to to see how it develops over time. And the the piece in Dome was was fascinating, incredibly provocative and stimulating. And I do urge everyone to to try and get hold of a copy of it. So, John, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Simon. It's an honor to speak with you. Thank you, as always. Until next time.